Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. This week, we are in the middle of a uh, mini sub-series uh, in the Old Testament that is focused in the book of Proverbs. Now, uh, Proverbs are speaking of genre, considered wisdom literature. It's a book of wise guidance to help you find the path to right living, godly living. And so right off the bat, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often made into a person called personification and she's a lady and lady wisdom is someone who is to be pursued seek her embrace her love her cherish her it says she wants to be found by you proverbs 8:17 and it says that lady wisdom has been with god since the beginning with all knowledge of good and evil right and wrong lady wisdom represents god's right understanding of good and evil whereas people sometimes can get it wrong. So pursue lady wisdom. Last week, Sam preached on the theme of anger that's talked about a lot in the book of Proverbs, being sort of hot-tempered versus patience, which he named as the anecdote to anger. We have two more themes to cover, conflict and use of words. And it struck me as I was getting ready for these next two, is this going to end up sounding a lot like the same sermon from three angles? Because these things are very related, anger, conflict, and words. Many of the Proverbs have to do with words and anger conflict in words, etc. Like they cross over because these things are indeed linked. But I think it is a, it's worth pausing and observing each, even if there is crossover, because all of these are wisdom for relational life together. This isn't about just individual growth stuff, which is all good too, but this is really, really good for fostering health in your relationships with our life together. So Today, we're going to start with conflict, but right off the bat, we're going to note a couple of crossovers with anger's theme last week. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 30, 33, for as churning cream produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. So we see that there's crossover and what are going on in these conversations. But one of the things that we want to observe is, again, about interrelational dynamics. It takes two at least, or more, to become conflict, right? Have you ever had that experience where you're really, really angry at someone and they have no idea and they're having a lovely day and there's their post on Instagram about their latte and you're burning up inside? There's no conflict there. They have no idea you're angry. You haven't had that engagement with conflict yet. Or if you're really, really angry, say with me and you confront me and you say that, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. I am so sorry. I, you know, if I just own it, if I own it, you were right. No conflict. You may be angry still or still hurt, and that might take time, but the conflict has been um, undone because I've owned my side of what was wrong. So when anger is met with anger, hurt with hurt, clashing of hot tempers, that's what we're talking about with relational conflict and strife. 
Our focus today is going to be only on that, on relational ones. I'm not talking about political conflicts, and I'm not talking about that debate with the strangers on Twitter. I just don't have the time for that. We're talking way more think in your own life when this is going on. Um, actual interpersonal conflict, maybe at work or church or in your family or your friend group. Not just that person who likes to poke and get a good debate going just to stir the pot, you know, that, not that person either. Conflict and strife that we're going to talk about is more than that. It's the kind that really impacts you. You feel it in your heart or your mind. And you disagree, that's fine. We're still in a good spot. But when it starts to brew, you know that moment when it crosses and there comes anger and hurt getting involved. And then all of a sudden you're like, I am in this different state. That's the state I'm talking about. Conflict and strife, the uncomfortable kind. Maybe if it's helpful to you this morning, I don't mean to make anybody angry, but like, go ahead and think of one in your own life. So you can kind of make this real, kind of get these little pithy proverb verses into boots on the ground kind of thing, right? So Proverbs clearly finds a state of conflict and strife unenjoyable, and the desire is for the opposite, peace and relational quiet. So the 17.1, one of the ones that Rebecca read, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife, meaning we would rather be poor and simple and at peace with one another in our homes than rich with a constant state of strife or conflict. It's clearly undesirable. And a clear theme also throughout Proverbs is teaching the wisdom of avoiding conflict or strife. I'll read a few kind of quickly, but I think I have them underlined. Yeah, the points, the theme of the um, over avoiding it. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. So here, in my opinion, is where the conversation around conflict gets really troublesome. Because I do not think that the Bible or the lived witness of Jesus says that all conflict is to be avoided or overlooked or dropped. I don't think that that's what we see. Sometimes we have to be prepared to enter into conflict in a God-loving, people-loving, Christ-following way. That's just the truth. So there's not Proverbs are not speaking shame over the fact that you've experienced conflict in your life, right? Now, it may sound like I just read holy, inspired word of God scripture and am now saying and teaching directly against what that said. And that would be a big no-no. That's not what I'm doing. And that would be not good of me. We should have warning flags if that's what we're doing, but it's not exactly. Not exactly. Remember what we talked about in the first week. Proverbs are not a formula or a guarantee of how things will turn out if you engage a certain way, right? They are pieces of wisdom, and part of the growth and the pursuit of lady wisdom is learning which proverb to apply to which situation. Some proverbs actually directly oppose one another in their advice. So it's gaining wisdom means knowing which one is true in a situation, not a cut and dry list that always works a certain way. If we were to take these proverbs alone, we might be prone to unhealthy conflict avoidance, and that is not what we want here, right? Phrases like, just get over it, move on, 
it's not that big of a deal. If you've ever heard those things, you know that they just add hurt to the trouble already stirring in your heart, right? It's minimizing a situation. You get bottled up and then you have hurt and resentment grows and you've got an unhealthy mess on your hands. So unhealthy conflict avoidance is not what we're looking for. Brene Brown says this, people often silence themselves or agree to disagree without fully exploring the actual nature of the disagreement for the sake of protecting a relationship and maintaining connection. But when we avoid certain conversations, we never fully learn how the other person feels about all of the issues. We sometimes end up making assumptions that not only perpetuate but deepen misunderstandings and that can generate resentment. Translation, just getting over it is not a healthy way to engage with disagreement with somebody else. That kind of conflict avoidance can't, can't keep us and our relationships healthy. So New Testament passages, there's a lot of them. I just grabbed one, but they follow similar instruction to seek actively after unity or peace instead of tension and interpersonal conflict. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But yeah, that sounds great and everything, but genuine peace in relationships requires the ability to engage in conflict in healthy ways. If we shove conflict or anger or hurt under the rug, we have false peace. And that's not even following Paul's advice then. That is a false peace. Bible talks a lot about living in unity, but we know unity without diversity, including diversity of thought, perspectives, personalities, experiences, unity without diversity is conformity. And the unity that actually allows for diversity takes much, much more work. Our faith teaches us to love one another and seek unity amidst our differences, and that includes the relational differences and differences of perspective that often lead to conflict. Conflict will come up as we rub up against each other in real life with our full, individualized, wholly broken, messy selves. And we want to be in real community, and so this is just a reality that conflict has to be something we know how to engage with. Now, I wanted our talk this morning about conflict to actually be hopefully useful in real life, in that example that I asked you to draw up in your head. Not just stand up here and say, avoid conflict, live in unity, you'll be good. It'll be fine. Like, that's not helpful. And so I want to step away for scripture for a moment and talk about science. Specifically, I'm doing sort of a different thing. I don't usually do a little science mid-chat. Um, but I think this one is helpful. I want to talk about our nervous system's role in conflict. Now, FYI, I am a both-and person when it comes to faith and science, and I am blown away with how beautifully and marvelously we are made when science uncovers stuff like this about how God designed the human body to work. This is amazing. Just reading through this and preparing, I was just back in Psalm 139 just being like, yes and amen. This is a miracle. So, I don't know this stuff though, so I called my friend Adrian. She's a counselor and a seminary friend of mine, um, and she's the one who came last year. Remember during our Taste and See series on embodied faith, um, and she taught that formations course on discipling your emotions. It was really, really good. So I, I didn't call her, sorry, I texted her. I was like, ah, what do I need to know? How do I make this actually helpful? Conflict, tell me about conflict. And she pointed me to this place, the place we find ourselves, a podcast by Adam Young. He's a counselor who's a Christian and clearly has a great big brain, but I listened to like three of his podcasts in preparation. And I would say that he's very um, absorbable. Like it was, it was really, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a counselor. And I was like, wow, that's, I 
could get it, you know? It was really good. So anyway, uh, this is from his episodes 79 and 80, in case you want to listen to it, because I'm not going to go into the full detail. But here's the thing that was blowing me away in our little science interlude. There is a concept called neuroception. Think of the word perception when you perceive something, but this is neuroception. Without your awareness, our nervous system is constantly, like constantly, surveying our environment for threats, safety or danger, including in our relational world. When danger is detected, physical or relational, our nervous system, in a fraction of a second, decides how to respond. And here we go into three different levels of how our nervous system responds. I know you weren't expecting science, just stick with me, like there's a reason I'm doing this. Number one is social engagement. This is our talking, putting our word, you know, use your words, um, our facial expressions, our body language towards somebody else. Okay, the next step is fight, flight, or freeze. In this state, you are highly energized. Your heart might be racing, your breathing is feeling tighter, um, and your breath quickens and you're very energized. This is important. Even if you're somebody who does the freeze thing, you're, it's an energized frozen. Versus the third one, which is shut down. This is where your heart and breathing slow, open. I don't know how to say that word. Natural drugs, are opioids are released in your system to calm you and to ease the physical pain. Um, you're, now, God has designed our brains to have this sequence to avoid danger and restore a state of safety. Now, really quick, let's take the example of a physical encounter with a lion while you're walking down Southport, okay? It's just you and a lion. Your brain in a fraction of a second is going to be able to determine that social engagement is not going to help. You are not going to be able to outrun flight and you're not going to be able to punch it, fight, right? And so your body in a fraction of a second will decide to freeze as its safety um, precaution with the hopes of uh, avoiding danger. And then the shutdown phase, honestly, like this is kind of gross, but it's, like, it's true. It will then, if you are attacked by the lion, it will sort of do all of these things to shut you down quickly so you experience the least pain as you die. Like the, your body is doing all of this without your awareness or your work at all. Now, Let's get to um, a relational example. A threat is a relational danger. The first thing your body is going to do and decide on its own, your neurosystem, um, for the neuroperception will try to talk, monitor your tone, listen, and engage rationally, okay? When I feel unheard or hurt by your words, all of a sudden, I my body will decide for me to escalate to the next level, whether it's my tendency to just like shut, just freeze and just be like, can't handle you, but with my heart racing or fight back or just flee, I'm out of here, right? So whichever one I'm prone to, my body has made that decision, decision for me. Now, in this case, in a relational situation, what might be um, the shutdown version, this might be like what your body is considering a relational death, like the death of someone, a divorce, um, being attacked physically by someone you know, you hear about stories about people who literally di feel disengaged, like they're out of their body, right? That's your body protecting you emotionally as best it can in the face of that intense of a relational situation. So thank you for bearing with me. Let me back this up. This is the part that was super helpful. Each of those three are driven by different sections of your nervous system. There's one nerve that goes down your back and it decides which part of your body is 
engaged at that moment. So in number one, at a hint of discord, your nervous system decides, am I gonna be able to get anywhere through social engagement? And it starts engaging social engagement. If your body has decided that social engagement is not working and the threat is there, your neurosystem now shifts which part of your body is activated. You guys, you no longer have access to the part of your nervous system that engages socially even if you were to try. You can't have access in the same way. That means you cannot remain calm, you cannot empathize, you can't express compassion or kindness until your body, your nervous system has perceived that a state of safety has returned. You're too escalated. And this is not a fault. This is God's glorious design for your body to protect itself and to try to restore a state of safety. I think that that is really beautiful and amazing, and it's super helpful to know in our own emotional intelligence as we're trying to decide how to engage rightly and lovingly in the reality of conflict. So, I'm gonna get back to the Bible now. But before we make our biblical observations, I want to just honor the miraculousness of that science for a second. Remember, if you're in a state of what your body perceives as conflict or strife, you may no longer be operating in a safe zone, nor is the person that you might be engaging with. So I submit this to you as an observation. If you know this about yourself and others, you can avoid the hot-tempered clash that the Bible calls strife. You can avoid that by choosing to engage in conflict in an honoring way. Engage wisely in the reality of conflict, right? So number one, level one social engagement, maintain that listening posture, the empathetic facial expressions, compassionate control, you have a lot of control over these here, and disagreement in love is possible, and it's not against the wisdom of Proverbs. If you're operating in a conflict or disagreement at level one, you're all good. You are still in a zone that is safe for you and the other person. You don't want to get to strife, but if that happens and you need to still address the conflict for the health of the relationship and for true unity, know this about our bodies and choose to pause until for you or the other person, a state of safety has been restored. And so if you are engaging in conflict at the level, the Number one, social engagement. I believe that that is wise, biblical, and God-honoring engagement in healthy conflict. Knowing this helps us to flag, we should pause and come back to this when we're able and when you feel safe or when I feel safe. That is a loving response. But now back to the Bible, because that's where I'm supposed to be hanging out, not in science. I have no qualifications for what I just did. That was all from that other guy, by the way. Back to the Bible. Um, what do I make of Proverbs calling us to avoid conflict or overlook offense? The answer is yeah. Sometimes, but other wisdom is here too. So I'm going to make observations from the broader breadth of biblical wisdom that we see on different responses to the reality of relational conflict. I'm just going to hand these to you and see what might resonate for you in different situations. There is a time to engage with conflict and a time to walk away. How do I know this? Not only does Proverbs tell us that, but Jesus did it. Jesus walked away. There were plenty of people seeking to engage with Jesus in conflict, to, to stir things up, to cause trouble, whatever. Sometimes Jesus answered 
with calmness. He always remained in that number one state. God's self was able to um, remain in that place, right? He could answer calmly with gentleness, evenness. But sometimes I believe that Jesus's neuroception decided number one is of no use, I'm allowed to walk away. Here's what I would say to that. We see this best in the moment when Jesus was um, uh, brought before Pilate and they were making all these accusations. In Matthew 27, 14, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. So the breadth of biblical wisdom showed that Jesus himself, shows us that Jesus himself practiced what I call avoidance of sideways energy. That's just a Melissa term. And what that means is like, I can engage in this and we might get somewhere, or I could engage with this with all my heart and soul and we are just gonna stay right here. There is no, nothing's coming out of this one. And when I see something that's, in, after I'm engaging in it and it's sideways energy, I feel okay to release that and be like, this is not where I need to be spending my energy. And I feel like that's what Jesus was doing there. This is not going to be the thing that changes anybody's mind and I know the path before me. I do not need to spend sideways energy. I'm not quoting Jesus. He did not actually say it that way. But he remained silent. And there are moments when you don't need to confront uh, engage with the conflict that you're confronted with. In broader society, I would say this, decide where to spend your energy. Decide when you can be like, I can walk away from this one. But in real life relationships, that walking away thing doesn't really work, right? We're gonna need to wrestle through this if it's really somebody that you're you know, in community with or you know, living with or whatever. Like that doesn't always work. And so maybe what this, no, don't do the sideways energy thing, maybe what this looks like for you is overlooking small offenses because sometimes it's just an irritation, right? It's not actually an offense. I'll just give you an example because Andy's not here and I know he's not watching on Facebook because he's at work. And so I'm just gonna tell you, you guys, ever since we've been married, we've had the same bed frame and every single day he puts his clothes on the hook the, the bed post by his feet and like it'll pile up like this big we've been married almost 21 years at some point I'm like this is just gonna happen I will be honest because he's not here and I don't ever really want to throw him under the bus I almost never look at the gas gauge in our car I cannot tell you how many times he's been like it's empty again we have two cars we share them I just don't look and like that's just I don't know what to say and so there's our R's those are examples when do you look at this and say okay 20 years later this is gonna be sideways energy I'll just fill up the car I'll just put those clothes in the wash bin myself like this is sideways energy so there are offenses that you can over look. Another piece of biblical wisdom that I would say from the breadth of biblical wisdom, another thing, decide what you just want to overlook. Um, the other one, uh, foster an attitude of forgiveness. And like Sam said last week, that practicing patience starts with the little things before you need to exercise in the big things. Fostering an attitude of forgiveness starts in the little things as well, so that you're um, a little bit more equipped when it comes to bigger things. Not all offenses are intended. You are human and so is the other person. So even if they did offend, it was not just an irritation, it was an offense. Like start to practice forgiveness, still being willing to engage in the conflict and express the hurt. But uh, Colossians 3 says it this way, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Practice the things like compassion and kindness and humility that fosters an ability to forgive when the occasion needs it. And I would say this too, it's reminding us you've been forgiven by God. So that helps you to be in a posture to be able to forgive other people. But the other thing that happens too is this doesn't mean to avoid it, does it? Because when I have offended God, I repent, I confess, I acknowledge the hurt. And so if somebody has hurt me and I'm going to forgive them, it's okay for me to acknowledge the hurt or the offense and say that hurt and then practice the engaging in a posture of forgiveness. So fostering those words of compassion, kindness, and humility helps to build us as people who will be capable to forgive when the moment comes. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus teaches this. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, this isn't a tit for tat. You stand forgiven, holy, righteous, and redeemed. Um, but what Jesus is saying is as you pray, sometimes the Spirit's going to convict you that like, man, I have resentment in my heart and I need to seek that reconciliation because I've been forgiven. So I want to seek the reconciliation with that other person. So Uh, That's another piece of biblical wisdom that I see across scripture, foster an attitude of forgiveness. Also in the breadth of biblical wisdom, we see that it's really good if you're experiencing conflict to just do a pride check. I don't love this one. This isn't like, this isn't my favorite one, but it's a really, really good one. And scripture tells us to do that. Are we really hurt or is our pride hurt? It's a little bit different. Is it our pride telling us we just have to keep going until we are right? We got to win this one. Or is there room for a peaceful outcome that you don't always need to get your way? Maybe you even need to initiate that path with humility or seek perspective from an outside voice where you're actually willing to listen to their perspective and be maybe corrected from wise advice. Proverbs 13.10 says, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Last week in Sam's sermon, again, he's told that passage about like, I'm saying it's not just if you're angry. Remember, wait, okay. I, Matthew 11. Let me get it right. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not even be angry. Do you remember that passage? So right after that, Jesus goes on and says in Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altars, meaning coming off of what I just said about anger, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Notice who took initiative in that example that Jesus just gave. You know that there's conflict. You initiate the reconciliation. That's a posture of not letting pride win, but accepting with some humility like I can seek after this um, Pride can perpetuate conflict longer than it's needed. Do you know what I mean? Like it just can perpetuate it. So check, check where pride is playing a role in your conflict. And then lastly, um, from the breadth of biblical wisdom, we are taught that the antidote truly is love. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Love in practice fosters an ability to act in ways that create a safe zone in ourselves and in one another. So back to that science part, right? We can hopefully avoid raising tensions because we engage in conversation in truly loving ways with marks of love. Or if we mess up and step into that triggered zone, right? We are able to see it stop it and take the time to restore one another to a place of safety before continuing. 
so if we know the science of what's happening in the other person's body, then, and we have the goal of staying in that safe zone, I wanna close this. When you think about conflict and how to stay safe, like how do I actually practice that? I think that the list in 1 Corinthians 13, it's in page 932 of your pew Bibles, if any of you are like at a visual place right now. Oh, I maybe put it on the screen too. I did, either one. Um, it is one of the most practical lists, in my opinion, in the entire Bible. And I say that because I love it. It's beautiful, it's poetic, and it's used in weddings, and that's all good. But this is about life together as a church. This actually has nothing to do with marriage. Um, in the context that Paul was originally writing it, he's like, how do you do this life together? And he talks about love. Listen to the explanation of the things that would clearly keep you in the safe zone in practice, if you could do it. Imagine in a conflict that you could love with patience. You could love with kindness. You would not envy. You would not engage in boasting. Your pride is not in the way. You don't dishonor others, meaning you don't hit below the belt just because your temperature is rising a little bit, right? It's not self-seeking. It's like same as saying, like, in humility, consider the other person, right? It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. No bringing up the old stuff that you already reconciled in the new conversation. That's a tough one, but it's a good one. It's really, really good. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. You guys, if we can engage in conflict with one another, with our loved ones, keeping this list of practices at the forefront, we stay in the safe zone and they stay in the safe zone. And if you mess up and you get out of that safe zone, just take a moment, remember this list and breathe and commit to returning back to that conflict until it can be resolved in safety. I believe that that is the biblical witness of the wisdom of how to engage in the right way, God-honoring way and a people-loving way in the midst of conflict. So um, let's pray. God, uh, I love you and I do not love conflict. Um, I, you've known me to be conflict averse for the first part of my life and engaging it in a healthy way is something that is just always a journey for all of us. And we don't always know when that moment comes when our body says we're no longer safe and just, man, the temptation to act in hurtful ways when we get to that zone is so big. So I ask you, God, that you would just equip us in real and tangible ways to practice that list from um, 1 Corinthians 13, that the way of love is the way that we've always watched um, the the gospel's witnesses of Jesus engaging in conflict with others. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to do the same, that while we're living out this real messy, holy, beautiful life together, we're gonna hurt each other sometimes. God, help us to grow as people who are willing to fight for healthy resolution when that does occur. Holy Spirit, empower us, strengthen us, and guide us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.